It's Wednesday, April 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. China has officially lifted the lockdown of Wuhan, the city where the coronavirus outbreak first emerged. When all this started, China shut down the city of 11 million and many countries took the same steps in some fashion. Now, the city is opening back up, but all is not as it was before. People can leave Wuhan, but a government-sanctioned phone app will have to affirm that they are not a contagion risk. Some businesses have set up street front counters so customers can get their goods without going inside, and schools remain closed. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios, joins us for the end of the Wuhan lockdown. Next, we have heard a lot of mixed results about the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine and its effectiveness in treating COVID-19. Not wanting to offer false hope, many health experts have urged caution until more studies have been done. But how did all this talk about the drug get started? And why has President Trump pushed for its use so hard? In mid-March, a cryptocurrency investor, a law school graduate, and a self-described philosopher found each other on Twitter and published a paper about the potential. Tina Wynn, White House reporter at Politico, tells us about the domino effect that led to hydroxychloroquine being part of the conversation. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. That's become pretty clear to government leaders and public health leaders around the world is that society is going to look very different after all of this is over. It's going to be some type of new normal. Um, and this is the same case for Wuhan. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thanks so much. So we had some interesting news on Wednesday. China has lifted the lockdown on Wuhan, the city where the coronavirus first emerged and you know, this just this big symbol of the pandemic. It's killed tens of thousands of people there. They were kind of the first ones to shut everything down in this time. You know, in 2020 right now, you think this can only happen in a place like that with this authoritarian uh, system that they can shut something down so major. Because, you know, when we were seeing this on the U.S. side, you're like, wow, that's crazy. We could never do that here. But since then, countries around the world and uh, to a large extent, even in the United States, we've had some version of this. Uh, Marisa, tell us uh, what's happened to China in, in recent times and why they're reopening now. So, yeah, like going off the point that you just mentioned, you know, we have half of the globe's population um, under a, some type of stay at home, work from home order. Right. And that seems insane. Uh, and so what, you know, something that's become pretty clear to government leaders and public health leaders around the world is that society is going to look very different after all of this is over. It's going to be some type of new normal. Um, and this is the same case for Wuhan. Um, like you said, wants the epicenter of China and the world in terms of, you know, the leading amount of deaths and leading amount of cases. Um, but it's 11 million people are finally being able to come out of their homes and their borders are being opened because there has been a drastically um, slow um, amount of people that have either contracted the virus or have died from the virus since it's um, 76 days that it's been on lockdown. Yeah. And, you know, everything really since obviously it first emerged there, the coronavirus, everything that we've been looking at, studies that we've been looking at, everything is starting there. You know, how the virus has affected people, 
possible treatments. You know, we're looking to China for a lot of things to see how they handled it, and then we can modify it for ourselves. And all eyes are going to be on Wuhan for some time to see how they rebound, how they start opening shops again. And, and there's some, uh, there's a little bit of that already. They have some new rules still in place, restrictive measures that, you know, we're going to have to see if those things work for us. So tell us a little bit about some of those things, how people are moving and how businesses are starting to open. To go off what you were saying, you know, Wuhan is opening up its borders when Europe and the U.S. aren't anywhere near that point, right? You know, we all see those big, um, crazy kind of projections of, you know, the bell curve, and we're just not anywhere near that point yet. And so China is tracking the comings and goings of all of its people um, rather carefully. One scenario that no country wants to happen is that they reach their peak and see that slow, and then all of a sudden they see a resurgence in cases. Um, Definitely worst case scenario. So like you said, all eyes are definitely going to be on, um, you know, the handling of this. And businesses had been slowly trying to reopen in the past few weeks, um, you know, but there's still a lot of hesitancy and public anxiety, not only going back to work, but, you know, public transit is, um, you know, not as full as it once was. Congregating in outdoor spaces is just finally starting to, you know, see people in public with families, older individuals finally congregating. Um, And so, That's not something an industrious economy, you know, like Wuhan can quickly bounce back from. Yeah, one of the interesting things is how people can move and the tracking that goes involved into it. We have to draw these parallels to how things would happen here in the United States. I don't know if it would get that far here, but people can leave after presenting to the authorities these government-sanctioned phone apps that say, based on their addresses and recent travels and everything, whether they're risks for the contagion. So. I mean, these, some of these rules in place are very, very strict. And as far as the businesses go, you know, a lot of them are setting up kind of street front counters so customers can buy some of their items without having to enter the stores. And, you know, as I said, what are they doing? How will it be implemented here? Stores here in the United States, you already see people limiting the amount of people entering. But, you know, could this be done for some smaller stores? These are all things that we're going to be looking at. Going back to, you know, the government tracking everybody's medical and travel history through an app, I mean, that's definitely not something you would see here. Um, And a New York Times article um, posted on Tuesday had mentioned that, you know, the Chinese transit expects, you know, 55,000 people to travel out of the province by Wednesday. Well, that's if you are allowed to travel, right? You know, if you are, you know, some type of medical history or travel history, you need clearance before you can actually get on a train and go somewhere. What are they planning to do as far as their bigger factories, uh, you know, uh, Honda, things like that, uh, and, and the vast amount of workers that need to get into small spaces and work in these factories. Are there any plans for that? In terms of Honda, there's a lot, like I said, a lot of these places are surging. You know, that's something that, uh, you know, you can definitely force people to come, but it's more of a voluntary basis. Um, And I know a lot of places are looking differently in terms of like how to produce back to that full capacity. But when you look and see, you know, what's being produced, it's all about demand. And if people aren't driving, then that right. demand also isn't necessarily needed. So it's 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 really a, a tricky balance that I know everyone's going to be watching. 
you know, I keep saying we're looking to Wuhan and to China as a model to see how to change our reaction or modify what we're doing. There's been a lot of skepticism about their statistics also. Uh, you know, people think that maybe they really weren't counting a lot of cases or maybe the number of deaths weren't as high as they think they might have been. Uh, so that's another concern, too, is that, you know, the government there has not always been so forthcoming with a lot of what's going on there. So that's another thing that we'll have to factor into how we respond to this, you know, using them as an example. There are tons of questions um, about the veracity of China's count, you know, what, but, you know, I want to say, you know, what's kind of clear on that, you know, more so is that this measure to reopen um, Wuhan wouldn't necessarily be done if it weren't under control. So you can definitely see, you know, this is after 76 days of a complete shutdown of 11 million people. So it's definitely going to be, you know, worth watching on what they can do. But, yeah, you make a very good point in terms of, you know, the data um, has definitely been really tricky and questioned by a lot of different governments. But you make the point as well, too. uh, Why would they do this to themselves? Why would they (laughs) reopen if they weren't ready for it yet? And and I know that, you know, economies are being crippled across the world and and we want to get back to work and we want to get that going. But, yeah, why would they do that to themselves? So it's not really in their benefit to, to approach it that way. But for now, I mean, we're really going to see the kind of this full circle for them, you know, starting there, shutting everything down. Now they're reopening and, and hopefully for them, things do come back. Uh, but as I said, all eyes on them in the meantime to see how it happens. And, and hopefully there's, you know, with the reopening, there is no re reemergence of the virus. Uh, you know, it doesn't start spreading. I think this week or so they've only reported, three new cases in the last three weeks and zero deaths mm-hmm. since this whole thing started. So they have turned this point and hopefully they can maintain that. Absolutely. Marisa Fernandez reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have uh, purchased And we have stockpiled 29 million pills of the hydroxychloroquine, 29 million. Joining us now is Tina Wynn, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Thanks for having me. Wanted to take a moment to talk about hydroxychloroquine. It's the drug that's been getting a lot of mentions in the news. You know, a lot of people trying to use it to fight COVID-19. It's had some uh, ups and downs, really. Uh, There's a lot of anecdotal uh, stories and evidence that says that it is useful, that it has helped people fight back COVID-19, but there really hasn't been enough studies done on it in this sense. It's an anti-malarial drug. Uh, It has some side effects that could be troublesome for some people. But like I said, there's just not enough studies done in this specific setting. But the president has touted it. He says uh, people should go for it and try it. Uh, The head of his um, coronavirus response team, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has said there's not enough evidence. I can't say scientifically that it works. But still, hydroxychloroquine is the buzz drug for this. But, Tina, uh, there at Politico, you guys wrote a story about how it kind of got its rise, how people started thinking of it more in this sense Tell us about that, how, how this came to be. So when it first broke into, I guess, mainstream consciousness was when Elon Musk, about mid-March or something, tweeted out the link to a Google document written by 
two people who claimed that they were affiliated with Stanford University and said that they conducted the research with Stanford, University of Alabama, all of these other very renowned places saying chloroquine is the thing that's going to cure the coronavirus. It is a cure. It is preventative. It's freaking magical, essentially. That's my words. <laughs> um, and when Elon Musk tweeted it out, all of a sudden, these two people, James Todaro and Greg Regano, started going on the talk radio circuit. Regano ended up on Fox News, and he called it a second cure for a virus of all time. Uh, and very specifically, he said cure. And the very next day, Donald Trump goes in front of the press pool and says, Chloroquine, it's a very promising drug. I'm making it available immediately. Everyone can take it. There's some very, very promising results. Immediately, Fauci has to step in and say, no, we haven't approved this yet. We're still doing tests on it. And Trump's fascination with the drug makes a lot of sense if you're trying to get rid of a problem as quickly as possible. It's a drug that's already FDA approved. It's out there. It's cheap to manufacture. And it's currently available in like generic form. So if you are Trump and you see a instant cheap cure out there and you want to assuage everyone and make everyone less worried about the coronavirus. You just point to this magic drug and there you go. Yeah. And and that's exactly why it has a lot going for it. It is already FDA approved for other uses. So it's gone through clinical trials in certain senses. So it's not like uh, it's something out of nowhere that's going to start killing people on its own. Uh, So you have that going for you. Uh, You have these anecdotal stories where doctors have used it and they said, you know, it helped get rid of the symptoms a lot sooner You know, but the biggest worry for the scientific community, guys like Dr. Fauci, is, you know, the biggest worry is offering false hope. You know, what if this doesn't work? And on the president's side, what if it does work? Then he fast tracked it and boom, you know, it's something that helped get rid of it a lot faster. So there's kind of uh, pros and cons to this on that front. But when you're thinking about the scientific community, you have to take the, the slower approach. That's why this whole talk about vaccines, we're looking for treatments as fast as we can, but a vaccine is going to be a year, 18 months away, they say. Um, so th- this is kind mm-hmm. of the pros and cons of all this. But right away, I know hydroxychloroquine got all the mentions. Uh, and, and in part, you know, due to kind of blowing up, as you mentioned, on Fox News, I think uh, Tucker Carlson had these guys on the show, Laura Ingram also. And Laura Ingram recently had a meeting with the president uh, where she brought some guys to, to talk about how effective this drug was. That's the thing with chloroquine's emergence on the scene, as it were. The story I wrote was about the discussions that took place before that document I was talking about was written. It was literally three guys on a Twitter thread, two cryptocurrency investors, one guy who is a philosopher who studied out of Wudang province in China, and they were casually talking about these studies, these small-scale studies that had come out of China. And keep in mind, these were really, really small studies, small sample sizes, I think early stage enough that you could say, maybe there's something here, but then there's also maybe seven other drugs in the pipeline that people are testing at once. But in this thread, the main author of that story, Regano, said, just to paraphrase, I want to focus on chloroquine. I want to get this out to the masses as quickly as possible. One of the other people in the thread said, wait, I feel like you're rushing this. And he went, no, the world is burning. We need all of the options on deck immediately. Yeah, and and that's and that urgency when you say words like cure, 
people are ready to go and ready to take it. So the other thing I want to talk about is some of the studies that they talked about. And also taking a step back, you mentioned also that they said that they were affiliated with some universities or they also helped in some of the studies. What have the universities said, at least with response to that? They were absolutely not involved. Every single academic institution that was listed in that paper as having been consulted said that they had nothing to do with it. Stanford said that Regano was not a medical advisor to them at all. One of the initial co-authors' names was Thomas Broker, and he said, I was not contacted. I did not ask to put my name on this. He's not an expert in coronaviruses. He studies HPV, which is not a coronavirus. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of um, bad faith going on in the creation of this document. But when you go back to the very beginning of the discussions, you just sort of like raise your eyebrows and go, okay, so if this was the type of discussion you are having while writing this, in the span of two days, keep in mind, from when he discovered what chloroquine was and started asking about data to immediately publishing and saying, hi, I work with Stanford and here is a cure for coronavirus, then you have to like really question the motivation behind it. Yeah, the whole rise of this whole thing has just been, really been a matter of weeks, less than a month, I think. And that's the, you know, this the wonder drug for it. And even some of the studies that they cited in this, one of them is specifically out of France where they said they did have some uh, some success with it. But then later on, they had to go back and say, well, this uh, study really wasn't done up to standards, up to our standards. It wasn't randomized. There was a couple of things wrong with the way they conducted the study. So they had to go back and say, you know, we can't really put our full endorsement behind something like this also. So there's been a lot of stuff said about hydroxychloroquine. It's possible that it could help, but really we just need to do more studies to find out if it could be an effective treatment but in this time, it's tough. People want something quickly and they want it now. Yeah. I spoke to a woman out of Harvard University. Her name is Joan Donovan. And she pointed out that we're in a situation where there isn't a lot of information and rumors can cause people to panic, is this one way of putting it, but make decisions based on not a lot of information. And that's definitely something you've been seeing with chloroquine. Um, doctors are worried that people who do take it for their intended purposes, like malaria or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis are starting to find it harder to get access to those drugs. And there might be terrible situations in which someone will take a variant of chloroquine, like chloroquine phosphate, and think, oh, that was the drug that Trump told me about, and then die, which is something that actually happened in Arizona. But the politicization around this drug that can't be ignored. There's a small but growing segment online of people who call that and another drug Trump pills. Right, just because the president has been pushing for them so hard. Yeah, the president has been pushing for them so hard, and all of these people in the mainstream media and scientists are saying no, no, no. Does that mean that there's something that they don't want you to know? Do these doctors not want you to know? Right, yeah, exactly. The conspiracies uh, theories start popping up almost immediately after that, you know. Why are they keeping mm -hmm. this from us? These whole things. Yeah, there's a, a, you kind of see these things happen a lot, but hopefully we can get some solid studies done on this. And if it does work, that's great. Let's use it. But if it doesn't, you know, we have to know before you can use it widely with a lot of people. Right. Definitely. Tina Wynn, White yeah. House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. This is fun. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.